Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Tony. When I first started preaching uh, regularly, I learned that sometimes I couldn't sing the song right before I preach as loud as I wanted to because I'd get up and I couldn't project and I was, my voice was tired. And that's one of those songs I'm just like, I don't care. Because <laughs> if that's all we hear tonight, I think, I think we've done fine. What a beautiful song. I need to hear that again and again. Philemon. Philemon chapter 1, as there's only one chapter. So if you'll make your way there. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. You'll need to be there in just a few minutes when we read our passage for the evening. Well, Christian history is full of examples of forgiveness. Full of examples of forgiveness that, quite frankly, can can take your breath away. Some of them we know well, and I hope that we don't grow so familiar with them that we fail to be moved by their testimony. Take, for example, the well-known story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and and others, Nate Saint and, and others who were martyred. Or perhaps the story you've heard recently of Rachel uh, Denhollander, who publicly forgave her abuser while she was a member of the USA Gymnastics team with a testimony that was full of gospel clarity. Or the story of Stephen in the book of Acts, where Stephen forgives his accusers while they are smashing his body with stones. Remember it says, And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Surely Stephen had been impacted by the example of Christ, who, while being crucified by those whom he came to save, used his final breath to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What is it about the Christian faith? What is it about the Christian faith that prompts Christians to forgive? Especially heinous sins. Perhaps we can consider for a few minutes the less known story of Gladys Steins. Graham and Gladys were Australian missionaries who lived in India where they had devoted their lives for the care of lepers. There in the caste society where lepers were the outcast among the outcast was a couple whose lives had been transformed when they, come, when they came to personally know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And they had now given their lives to serve others. They'd lived there in India for 15 years laying down their lives in service of lepers. There, it was there that they raised their children, three boys and a little girl. Until one night, Gladys' husband and two small boys were burned alive while they slept by a group of religious militants. It's an atrocity that takes your breath away. I wept as I read this story. 
Thankfully, the, murders were, the murderers were later brought to justice, and on the day that they were sentenced, Gladys, now a widow, issued a statement that even now stuns me. She said this, I've forgiven the killers and have no bitterness because forgiveness brings healing and our land needs healing from hatred and violence. Listen to what she said. God in Christ has forgiven me and he expects his followers to do the same. Those are not just words. Gladys returned with her 13-year-old daughter to the very same place and continues to serve lepers. Where do people like this come from? Where do people like Stephen and Rachel and Elizabeth Elliot and Gladys, where do they come from? I mean, where, where do they find the capacity to forgive actual atrocities? That's incredible. These are people who, as Hebrews said, they're just not of this world. These are people who have been born again. People who have new life. People who have been so stunned and so gripped by the forgiveness that they have found in Christ that it has actually transformed the way that they treat other people. Now we we can hear stories like these. And we can sniffle tears of sympathy and feel feelings of Christian inspiration and resolve. But but I suppose the question is, can we actually forgive people who sin against us every day? I mean, these big, like, heroic acts are, those are impressive. And we could maybe, you know, speculate about that. But what about us and the sins that we experience every day? Can we actually forgive people around us? Do we know about, or rather, do we make use of the spiritual resources that we have right now to forgive the minor sins of the people who live around us? I mean, that's the question. Well, we might wonder, I remember as a kid when I'd hear, when I heard the story of Jim Elliot, I always would wonder, could I do that? Could I, could I do, and I, want, I wanted to do that, right? I mean, could, could I do that? And we might wonder if we would have the capacity to, to forgive an atrocity. We wonder what we might do. And we could speculate. But I don't think it really matters that much what we speculate. Not compared to how we actually live our lives each day and how we actually forgive the actual sins that are in front of us, committed against us. Because the gospel is not concerned only with grand, heroic acts of forgiveness. But it's mostly concerned with the small, the everyday stuff. Sure, we may have a chance to demonstrate that we've been transformed with big, dramatic moments of forgiveness. But most of the time, our chances come on a much smaller scale. On a daily basis. Will we, be, will we be gracious to a cranky spouse? How do we respond to a rebellious or tired child? How do we continue to love people who are chronically selfish? 
The book of Philemon is a book, a little letter, about forgiveness. It's a book about normal Christians forgiving other normal Christians. And tonight we'll finish our study of this little letter. And and from the text tonight, what we will see is that we will hear a call to forgive as we have been forgiven. It's not new, most likely, but it's a call we need to hear again and again. To forgive as we have been forgiven. Now we have uh, read this text in its entirety a couple times. And tonight, let's read verse 17. We'll start reading in verse 17. Paul says to Philemon by letter, So if you consider me your partner, receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hopeful that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would comfort and encourage our hearts, that you would cause us to grow in our love for you, in our wonder that you would love and forgive us. Lord, that that would transform our lives. There's so many relationships that are represented in this room. Many of us have been sinned against in very painful ways or live with continual difficulty. And Lord, I pray that you would draw near and minister to each need in a way that no human can. But more than anything, Father, I pray that your word would sink deep into our hearts with clarity and conviction and power. That we would experience that the power of the cross is not just something that was powerful back when, but its power continues on and lives even today. So help us in this, I pray. Amen. Tonight, I'm going to draw your attention to five lessons of forgiveness, I suppose. But, but hopefully, you've been here in previous weeks and, and, and have been a part of our study so far. But, but if you haven't, here are the main things you need to know about Philemon. Philemon is a tiny letter that Paul writes on behalf of Onesimus, a runaway slave who has come to accept Christ. And now that he has experienced the grace and forgiveness of God, Onesimus sees that the forgiveness of Philemon, his master, is something that he needs to seek. He needs to repent and make this wrong right. And so Philemon, his former master, apparently is a close friend of Paul, and Paul takes up his pen to write and work to be an agent of reconciliation. Now, whatever questions you have about what has happened so far, I'm afraid I'm going to have to send you to our website, and you can perhaps listen to recordings of past sermons, right? If you have questions about Christians and slavery and, and, and that sort of thing, those are all, those are all important, um, but we've already worked through those. And tonight, we're coming to the, 
to the point in the letter that really gets to the heart of the matter of forgiveness. Paul has been very careful. Paul is often not subtle, and he's pretty subtle in this letter. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, and he's been careful in making his plea so far. He's, he's, been, he's been very uh, sensitive and, and gentle and careful not to manipulate or pressure Philemon. But now we come to the most direct plea of the letter here in verse 17 where Paul comes out and says, Receive him. Receive him even as you would receive me. Right? It's a plea for forgiveness and reconciliation. Which brings us down to what we can learn about forgiveness from this text tonight. So we'll, we'll organize it like this. The, the first thing I would encourage you to see is that forgiveness requires reception. Reception. Now if you're thinking of little mints and peanuts, that's the wrong reception. And now I've given you the wrong reception to think about. So let's think about the, the more relational sort of reception. It may, it may sound simple, but this is an essential and first step in forgiveness. Reception. If you think about it, that may not be as simple as it seems, right? When someone sins against you, I mean, when they really hurt you, when their behavior disgusts you, what's our impulse? Do you want to be with them? Right? Do you want to be around them? Do you want to share your life and your heart with them? No. At least that's not my impulse. My impulse is to avoid, to ignore, to hide from. I've seen a husband throw himself into his work to avoid coming home to his wife who hurts him. Or someone may leave a group because their feelings were hurt. Right? Who wants to be around a person that hurts them? Sin always causes some sort of fracture in relationships. Yet the Christian impulse is that we are to receive others. The idea is that even though you've hurt me, I will let you in on, on some level. I, I, will be, I will allow you to be a part of my life. I will be near you. I'm willing to share my life with you in some way. Paul's encouragement to Philemon in verse 17, receive him, gives us a picture of this. In my house, my wife and I call this in our marriage, coming towards each other, right? Uh, when things aren't peachy, right? There's just like sometimes like we need to just be, we need to be closer. We need to be uh, more open. We need to be willing to be near each other. You're probably wondering what kind of marriage I have. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I should have written that down, too. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. To, to let someone in. To be, to be close. I'm willing to share my life with you. The first impulse of a forgiving heart is, is, to, is that we have to realize we have to risk some more pain. Right? To, to let a person close to you by allowing a sinner to be close to you. Avoidance. The cold shoulder, silent treatment, stonewalling, manipulation, all of these things are decidedly unchristian. Philemon had good reason to receive Onesimus because Onesimus, as from all from what we can tell, was repenting. Paul had been vouching for him in this in this letter in his Christian character. And so Philemon had good reason to receive him back in. But what if that's not the case? What if they're not repentant? 
do we, do we let them closer still? Do we continue our relationship? Do we continue to show mercy and kindness? Well, I think that's a good question. But to that, I would say, how do you really know if someone is repenting? Right? How, how do you know if you don't continue a relationship with them? If you don't give them a chance? If you don't extend some degree of mercy? Sure, they may still have a hard heart. And they may still hurt you again. And they may be trying to manipulate you. You've seen it before. False repentance. But we as God's people recognize that love will give plenty of opportunities for folks to prove us wrong. We can assume the best and give folks an open invitation and, and, and I don't have time to go into all this tonight, right? But there, and, and there are different severities of sin. And so the way that we let people near us, right? There, there's all sorts of wisdom that needs to be used here. But on the common sorts of, of relational rifts, that's mainly what I'm referring to in this instance. When folks sin against us, there's, we need to use measures of wisdom, but still to permit others to come near us. To give them, a ch- give them a chance to prove us wrong, right? That they're not sincere. This is especially true when we're offended by other Christians. And it's especially true in the church, right? Because, because if we recognize that this other person is a Christian, if, if, if a Christian sins against us, then we need to remember this. God is for sure working in their heart. God is for sure working in the heart of that Christian. Now, you may not see fruit for a decade, but God is working. And if we pull away and if we shut it down, we may be completely missing or even hindering God's work of sanctification. Friends, I know that people can do things that really hurt us. I know that you have been hurt. But we cannot rule out the sanctifying grace of God. He transforms people. Right? We've talked about the people that are involved in this letter. right? A religious terrorist, a slave owner, and a runaway slave. God changed them all. right? You don't know what God's doing in the lives of others. So we need to be hopeful and optimistic. We need to give people a wide berth. As they are being transformed. Those who are transformed, who have been transformed, and are being transformed by the grace of God will be eager to give others a wide berth for God to work. If you remember verse 11, when Anisimus ran away from Philemon, uh, Paul makes the point, right? We've talked about how the word Anisimus means useful, right? In verse 11, Paul says, hey, you remember Philemon was useless, but now he's become very useful to me. In other words, God has been at work in this, in this mess. Now the one who is useless is useful for the kingdom of God. We need to remember the doctrine of progressive sanctification in our relationships. God is at work in the person who hurts you. You don't know what he's been doing. And you don't know his timetable. So let's be eager to receive and to extend measures of mercy to those who sin against us and love them. A second thing I'd like for you to notice is that forgiveness involves restitution. Restitution. Verse 18, we see that Paul is a realist. He understood that Philemon had suffered loss because of Onesimus' sin. 
Onesimus's, that's a, that is a good word, Onesimus's sin. <laughs> right? that, real, that real suffering had taken place, whether it's financial loss or whether it's personal loss, not entirely sure, probably both. But Paul recognizes and understood that, that restitution is appropriate here. Whether we are the sinner or whether we are the recipient of sin, the victim, we've got to remember that all sin, no matter, no matter how big or small, causes damage. I mean, it causes loss. Loss of property, loss of time, loss of respect, loss of dignity, loss of trust, loss of justice, loss of peace. Sin is the destruction of what is good that God, in God's world. Right? Sin is always tearing down what God has created. And those of us who have been transformed, those who are repentant, when we are truly repentant, we will want to do all that we can to make right the wrong we did. To make, to make it whole. We'll have a desire to repay what has been taken. To mend what has been broken. Which means that we'll be patient as trust is rebuilt. If you've hurt someone, right, and it takes time for trust to be rebuilt, be patient and cooperative with that. Recognize that sin causes damage. And yes, God's grace heals and restores but we shouldn't make light of the damage that it can do. The gospel never makes light of sin. You may be tempted to think that, but the gospel never makes light of sin. Just think about it. Jesus died for your sin. He didn't make light of sin. He died for the sins of those he forgave. So when someone sins against you, forgiveness, forgiveness does not mean that you have to minimize your pain or write it off or pretend like nothing happened or, or to pretend like that no damage has been done. And, and the guilty party, right, hey, I'm often on the guilty side of this. Right? We need to be aware of that and to be sensitive and gracious with others. I once worked with a man who had repeatedly cheated on his wife. And they were working with me, and we were trying to pick up some of the pieces of their marriage and their life. And, and, and he was repentant, and he was, he was trying to do the right thing. But he sincerely did not understand why his wife was still hurt. He, he sincerely, it, only, it had only been a few months. And he, did, he sincerely did not understand. And he said this. He said, I've said I'm sorry. Like, oh, what is he failing to see? Right? He, he's... He's failing to see the damage done by sin. And even though his wife was working to forgive him, he had minimized his sin in the name of forgiveness. So part of his repentance was going to be listening and taking seriously how his actions had hurt his family. And eventually, by God's grace, that's the path that he chose. Paul recognized that a debt had occurred. That the damage Onesimus had done caused loss. And amazingly, Paul offered to pay for it. Right? That's remarkable. And he asked Philemon to receive Onesimus anyways. So I think this is an important point. It's not wrong to demand or desire restitution. It's not wrong to want justice. It's not wrong to want the person who sinned against you to understand that they've hurt you. And what they've done. But hear this, friends. It's also not wrong to be gracious. 
right? Paul was setting up the situation to encourage Philemon to not only forgive Onesimus, but even to forgive the debt as well. We'll see more of this in verse 19. But can we just acknowledge this powerful truth? I think it's remarkable. We are, and I think it was John MacArthur who said this, or I don't know, I think a couple people have said this, but we are never more like God than when we forgive. We're never more like God than when we forgive. And we're never more like Jesus than when we help others pay for sin. So we have a remarkable chance in our relationships. And that brings us to the next point, and that forgiveness involves a recognition of an unpayable debt. The recognition of an unpayable debt. Verse 19, Paul says, I write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. <laughs> Y'all see what Paul's doing? He's like, charge, his, charge it to my account. By the way, do you remember who told you about Christ? <laughs> right? It's like the ultimate like one up there. Right? Paul, Paul is uh, he's offering to pay the debt himself. But then he reminds Philemon, Hey, buddy, don't forget. You owe me. Surely he's speaking of the fact that Philemon is a Christian because of Paul's gospel ministry. Paul's strategy is interesting. Basically, he's putting Onesimus, he's putting his debt on his account, on Paul's account, and then he's using Philemon's debt to cancel it. (laughs) You track that? He's putting Onesimus' debt on Paul's account and then using Philemon's debt to, to cancel. It's an interesting strategy, but I think we can appreciate what's going on here. We as Christians recognize, hopefully quickly, we are debtors. Each of us is a permanent debtor. Each of us owes a debt that we could never repay. The spiritual debt that we owe is beyond any debt that we will ever be asked to repay in our relationships with others. I mean, who among us has had to pay the full price of his debt of sin? If you're not in hell tonight, then you cannot say me. Christians marvel over the fact that we will never pay, never pay the debt of our sin. On the cross, Jesus has paid our debt on our behalf. And so we sing with conviction. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. So let me say, if you're here tonight and if you have not placed your faith in Christ, if Christ has not covered your sin, then let me warn you that the day is coming where you will one day be required to pay your debt of sin. And the Bible teaches the wages of sin is not cheap. It is death. It is eternal death. Which means that you will spend all eternity in a place called hell. Bearing the just and righteous judgment of God. That has been caused by your sin against a holy God. Unless you repent and are born again. So turn to the Savior. Relieve your burden and be saved. 
See, we who have been forgiven, this is our story. Like this is, the, this is the story of our lives. We recognize that we are forever indebted to God. <laughs> there's, no, there's, there's no way we can come close to repaying him. In fact, we don't try to repay him. Instead, we serve with joy. We can't repay the Lord. We who have been forgiven recognize that we are forever indebted to God. And I think that we can apply this principle to others. This principle of our debts to our debts with others. You see, not only that, but you see, Paul seems to recognize that Christian ministry is in some ways reciprocal. I mean, think about it. Have you benefited from the ministry of other people? Have Have you ever had someone teach you the word in a way that was helpful? Have you ever been disciplined for your good by a parent? Have you had a Sunday school teacher that shared Christ with you? Have you had loving correction? Right? I mean, someone told you about Jesus. Then why would we be reluctant to sacrifice for the spiritual good of others? Right, we recognize other people have sacrificed for us. Why would we not be eager to sacrifice for the spiritual good of others. Wouldn't we want to be eager to absorb, to to be a benefit, is what the text says, to be a benefit to others? Do we not have a desire to refresh the hearts of others? Just as Gladys, Gladys Stain said, the Christian impulse to forgive others springs from the joyful recognition that we ourselves have been forgiven. And this truth must always be before us. If you find yourself in a circumstance where it is hard to forgive, where it is hard to be around someone that is hurting you, let me encourage you. Remember Jesus. He endured from sinners tremendous hostility. Consider him. You won't lose heart. He'll restore you. A fourth lesson is that forgiveness is costly. It's costly. We see this in a couple ways. Forgiveness is costly. Reconciliation is costly. Paul was willing to take on a financial burden for the sake of reconciliation. Right? He didn't have any skin in the game except for the glory of Christ and the fame of the church and relationships of friends. And in order for this, for this forgiveness to take place, Philemon uh, was going to have to take on some sort of loss. He'd have to, that, that's always taking place when we forgive. We have to absorb some pain from the sin that has been committed. In most cases, there is no amount of restitution that can undo the damage caused by our sin. Right? You can't take back your words. Trust is not rebuilt with a snap or a Hallmark card. Right? We, we, we carry some of the scars of sin even to this day. There may be scars you carry your whole life until Jesus makes you new. And there's coming a day where we recognize that God is making all things new. Where every crime will be brought to justice, where every abuse will be made right, and where every wound is made whole. And that will happen in the new heavens and the new earth. But that's not now. Which means that we, even those of us who are victims, will have the opportunity to absorb some of the cost of sin. The Bible says that Jesus bore our sins in his body. 
Since Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might forgiven, we now have a chance to become like him in his death. We can absorb some of the damage done by sin. We can swallow our pride. We can, we can, we can uh, give up cruel words that we have been uh, recipients of. We can give them to the Lord and take those burdens there and ask him to heal. And this is what we can do every time that we choose to extend mercy. It's the attitude that we take when we say, hey, you know what? You've hurt me and your words and your apology, no matter how sincere, like I appreciate it, but it doesn't make the pain go away. But I'm going to choose to extend love and to forgive you anyways. Because God has forgiven me. I've seen this in my own life. Uh, There are times where I'm hesitant to offer forgiveness because it just hurts. Right? Can you think of an instance in your life where it's costly? It, it, just, it just doesn't feel right. Like, it just doesn't seem right. Like, it seems like if I forgive, I'm saying what you did isn't a big deal. Like, it didn't hurt me. I can't do that. And I think we need to be reminded that when we forgive, we are called to absorb some of the cost. And Christ is our example for this. That he absorbed it for us. We need to see, we need to hear now when you're in the, in the peace of a setting like this, you need to hear forgiveness is costly. So when you forgive others and it's hard, look to Jesus. And for the sake of love, we can say, I'm going to choose to absorb and take on some of the pain that's been caused by your sin for the sake of love. Because Christ has done this for me. A final point briefly is that reconciliation it really affects the whole church. It affects the whole church, right? We're really tempted to think that, that a relational conflict is just between the two people involved in the conflict. But if they're Christians, they're, that conflict affects the entire church. Uh, in, in verses 20 through 25, we see a lot of different ways that forgiveness affects the church. In verse 20, Paul is saying he longs to be refreshed by hearing of the reconciliation of two brothers. Right? Have you ever seen that? You have friends that are quarreling and you long to see it made right and then when it does, you're refreshed by that. It affects others. Verse 20 and 21, Paul is so confident that this reconciliation is going to take place that that he goes ahead and makes some some travel plans. It would be pretty awkward if Paul showed up and Philemon had not forgiven Onesimus. It was like, wait a minute, man. I told you he was like my very heart, right? Some... uh, some accountability that's going on there. Verse 23 and 24 and 25, Paul mentions five other brothers who are invested in this, in this matter of reconciliation. Five other brothers who want to see things be made right, who would be hurt and disappointed if, if forgiveness uh, was f- failed to be extended. All right, friends, we've said this before. We need to be reminded that we do not live in a vacuum. Our Christian lives are not in a relational vacuum. Our choices affect one another. Perhaps more than anything, we need to remember that our failure to forgive shames the entire church of Christ. It shows that we don't understand this gospel that we claim to be changing. This is one of the reasons Paul says in Corinthians that that lawsuits don't don't make sense among Christians. (laughs) Wouldn't it be better to be wronged? That's what he says. Wouldn't it be better to take some of the pain and shame the church of Christ? We are a forgiveness people. 
and we have lots of opportunity to practice in our relationships with others. When we fail to forgive, we're communicating to the world, this is what Jesus is really like. There's a certain kind of sin, a certain amount, a certain scenario, that he won't forgive. Christians are debtors. We have been forgiven more than anyone else in the whole world. Right? We, we must come to realize that we ourselves are the chief of sinners. It's not Paul, it's me. It's not you, it's me, right? I, we need to come to this place. Because once we realize that we are the chief of sinners, we will realize that Christ is the chiefest of saviors. And his grace extends even down to me. When we become amazed of what we have been forgiven, we will find in ourselves this new strength, this new power of the cross to absorb pain and to forgive the sins of others and to love and forgive radically. Tonight we're going to close our service by singing the hymn, Come Thou Found, which of course has that great line that we are daily debtors to grace.